Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Douglas Glynn was a classic Mr. Nobody, I would say. A very trusted person within the, the, the Kinahan Cartel's uh, Irish operation. But he wasn't somebody on the Garda radar. Certainly wasn't appearing in the Sunday World or any other newspapers. Trusted by Daniel Kinahan himself, uh, from what we have heard. And he was the type of person that made the, the Kinahan Cartel function. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The Kinahan organised crime group were dealt another blow last week when a court case heard that a breakthrough in encryption cracking technology had led Gardaí to their top commander in Dublin and his drugs and weapons storehouse. Criminal Douglas Glynn, already serving six and a half years for his role in a plot to kill, pleaded guilty on ammunition and drug charges after the Garda search of a lockup he was operating in Dublin at the height of the Kinahan and Hutch feud. Messages uncovered on the unidentified encrypted phone were cited in court as read by officers involved in the investigation of serious organised crime. Today, I'm talking with Niall Donald about the previously unknown Glynn and his role as the Kinahan's logistic man in Ireland. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Will we start by just reminding people, because he's a lesser well-known member of the Kinahan cartel, who Douglas Glynn is? Yeah, Douglas Glynn uh, was... A classic Mr. Nobody, I would say. Mm. He was a very trusted person within the, the, the Kinahan Cartel's uh, Irish operation. But he wasn't somebody on the Garda radar. Certainly wasn't appearing in the Sunday World or any other newspapers. But he was probably one of the most trusted uh, people that was... Basically, they described him as a manager for the, the Kinahan yeah. Cartel. And that's he was a person that was trusted. He was an associate of Ross Browning. Um, trusted by Daniel Kinahan himself, uh, from what we have heard. And he was the type of person that made the, the Kinahan cartel function. 
Now, he was from the Hardwick Street Flats area where, of course, Ross Browning was originally from, where Gary Finnegan was from, and where other significant members of the organisation and those who were hired by it included Robert Brown, who's serving a sentence in relation to the attempted, um, or sorry, the plot to kill Patsy Hutch. Um, Hardwick Street at the beginning of the feud was seen as kind of a stronghold of the Kinahan organisation. And at one point, it was estimated that up to 50 or 100 young people in the area were on retainers to bring in information, intelligence uh, regarding the rivals. And Glynn was from here. While we didn't know him, funny enough, I think the guards were very well aware of him for a long time because I remember the first conversation I had about him and it was actually well after I hadn't known of his existence around 2016, 2017. It was really as he was coming to trial, I think probably as he had been arrested for his role um, to do with that murder attempt on James Mago Gately or the plot to kill Mago Gately. And I was like, who is Douglas Glynn? I mean, Douglas isn't a name that you come across. It's a very posh name, actually, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. Huh? Douglas. Dougie, maybe not yeah, so much. Yeah, Dougie isn't so much, but Douglas. Um, and anyway, I was kind of almost laughed at by that I didn't know who Douglas right, Glynn right. was. And I was. it was explained to me under no uncertain terms who he was and his importance. But funny, I think he was one of those people whose importance... It was like kind of if you're working for an organisation where there is a huge redundancy package is given out to some of the senior roles and then all of a sudden people who are in junior roles get really highly promoted very quickly and go up the ranks. Glynn was one of them. He was the kind of one of the most trusted people left in Ireland after, you know, a lot of the the Kinahan mob fled to Spain, to Dubai, or they were targeted here by the police. Yeah, I mean, if you look back on Harwick Street Flats, if you go back to when Ross Browning and... uh, you know, was just a teenager himself, Gary Finnegan, uh, Gary Hutch, they all appeared on on this uh, armed robbery charge. And, you know, that was that cell of the Kinnan cartel goes back that far. Um, while Daniel was based in the south side for the most part, he had his most trusted people were in that kind of, that that based in that area. There was others who have, who've dropped off over time. Mm. Um, so Douglas Glynn, uh, you know, like in any organisation you have... Uh, you have the, the the workers that make it run. Mm. I think um, you have maybe the talent, but you have the workers that that do all the the stuff and do it do it um, do it competently and make it operate. So I mean, he he played on a day to day basis. On a of day course, to day. you mean yeah, yeah, keep, like keep the show on the road. Really, keep the show on the road can be trusted. Yeah. Aren't you know going to be out of their heads? Aren't going to rob money? Aren't going to you know be informing to the guardie, aren't going to be getting in feuds and mm-hmm. getting arrested and doing all that sort of stuff. And I mean, this, the guys who do that sort of stuff end up in the Sunday world, but these guys, as you say, they don't. And Douglas Glynn was one of them. Um, but I'd say most concerning for the for the, the upper echelons of the cartel would have been the evidence given this week where they said, uh, the guardie described how the encrypted, they had a breakthrough in uh, in getting in in viewing encrypted technology, I think that would be concerning. Very much so, and there wasn't a huge amount of detail given. But um, Douglas Glynn, of course, and by the way, before we go any further, we should say that 
were kind of slightly painting Hardwick Street flats there. It no. just so happened that there was a number of very key, significant players in the Kinahan organisation that were living in that area. And it was described really as a stronghold of, as the city kind of divided following the feud when the North Inner City was very much Hutch territory, Hardwick Street was seen as being sort of more friendly to the Kinahan organisation. And clearly and obviously, there's hundreds of people living in that area who have nothing to do with organised crime. Actually, it's actually a very settled area yeah. know, for the most part. You're not going to, it's not the, the the kind of flat complexes where you see massive antisocial behaviour or anything like that. In fact, it would be one of the more settled and, and uh, quiet areas right beside. Many people will know it actually from. Uh, bringing kids to Temple Street, you know. Yeah, it's a great location. Yeah, but have parked around there. the city centre, like. But there was a number of of seizures of of Kinahan guns and Kinahan weapons there. One one, uh, member of the cartel, lower level member of the cartel, Glenn Holland, for example, was Mm. was based there as well. So it did become, there was individuals in that community who who were very, closely associated with them. And you know, and before we move on to this, about the encrypted phones, which is really why we're we're talking about all this, but Hardwick Street was really the birthplace of the parent, you know, the concerned parents against drugs movement. Mm. Do you know that? It was one of I the, Wacker Humphreys was from there. And do you know who else? Obviously, Ross Browning's father was a, was a leading uh, anti-drugs campaigner as well yeah. at the time. And that was back in the day where there was an element of hope, I suppose, and that where, when parents believed, I'm talking before this movement was kind of infiltrated and before it would have been accused of mob rule and all the rest of it. But the starting point of it, the birth of it, was for really good reasons. And it was that parents believed that they could save their children and their communities and their neighbourhoods from this scourge of drugs, that they all they had to do was run out the dealers and that was going to kind of secure their... And they believed in their communities yeah. and they went out and marched and fought. There's some footage actually on RTE, um, some old footage from Hardwick Street and the journalist has gone along and interviewed the the locals and they are actually talking that they've got rid of a couple of pushers that they had stamped out the confidence they believed they'd stamped out heroin that that was that was it done and i mean there was a no sort sense of naivety to that no. nobody just knew what was coming no. nobody knew that drugs was going to be bigger than everybody bigger than communities bigger than families bigger than the love people could give their children that that drugs was going to take over in the way it did yeah, the grip, of course, is not easily weakened. Um, mm. You know, that's that's proven to be time. The grip of addiction and the grip of of, of drugs on communities is not is it's not weakened merely by making something legal or illegal yeah. or or putting prohibition on it. Unfortunately, um, that a lot of the people moved were pushed out of the flat complexes, but just ended up living in in different parts of the inner city in in private accommodation. You know, the problem, unfortunately, wasn't solved as simply as that but again no, then again generation. no but then again it was um you know you have to admire people that stood up and 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 took back at least their living space uh, mm. within those communities and these guys that we're talking about you know Ross Browning and Finnegan and all the rest of it from Hardwick are the tiny proportion of young I'll still call them because they're around <laughs> my own age people yeah. that um you know that went down that route as they were growing up they had obviously been brought up you know, in the late 70s, the early 80s, into the early 90s, they'd seen some of the destruction that heroin had brought. And I think, you know, they were unfortunately morally corrupted and 
more than likely they were tempted by the wealth and the that life of sort of lifestyle that was there in Spain as the Phoenician Yeah, I think school. they made a distinction as well between cocaine and ecstasy and, and, I think and cannabis did. and heroin and felt that that was a different thing. And they did. That there wasn't, a, you weren't a, in, a, inflicting stuff on the community in the same way. Again, it hasn't proved that simple, you know? No, and especially that's exactly, I think, what happened. I mean, obviously, you'd hear it yourself and you're talking to people, even dealers, and they talk about sure, they're only selling smoke, a bit of yeah. weed. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not heroin, at least not heroin. And cocaine and ecstasy absolutely came in as the fun recreational drug. They weren't seen as having the same health effects and the same kind of... They didn't have, they were supposed to be not as addictive, but I think really in recent times, certainly with cocaine, you can see that for a drug that isn't addictive, it's extraordinary what it no, does. No, and to I some mean, people. obviously, the, the, the crack cocaine epidemic is is, is also caused it's by also imported cocaine. along there, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, cocaine use, I think, is it the use of it that's addictive or something? If the drug isn't addictive, as the scientists tell us, something is. Um, well, I mean, it's a, com- a complex thing of uh, some, yeah, somebody is an addict. They're going mm. to use a substance addictively. Obviously, heroin alters your physical chemistry in a different way. Mm. But addiction is, more, again, more complicated than merely a physical reaction. To a substance. Right. Now, look, um, that's a bigger it is. maybe thing than we can ever solve. But anyway, what we wanted to talk about was Douglas Glenn, who he was. Now, we're on to that. So he has pleaded this week guilty to um, offences around some drugs and weapons that would have been found in the Hardwick Street area around the time of that plot to kill James Mago Gately when Imre Arrakis was brought in to the country. Um, that time, Daniel Kinahan and Bomber Kavna pooled their resources and their senior men to take on Gately. I mean, it was a culmination of, um, I suppose they hadn't really while the murders had come fast and furious at the beginning of the feud, there was a feeling that they hadn't really got close to some of the key players on the other side in the Hutch faction, those ones that they had on their hit lists. And they decided that because all the a lot of the hit teams had been picked up, a lot of weapons had been found, there was an awful lot of arrests, a lot of people behind bars, that they were going to put their top men on it and this one wasn't going to go wrong. And of course it did, spectacularly. Yeah, yeah I think they were trying to keep it at this point to a really, really tight group of people. They're obviously afraid of informers and, and other surveillance uh, techniques. And at that point, um, the sort of soft targets had come and gone and really they wanted to kill two people Mm. arguably three, Jerry Hutch as well, but really they had uh, James Mango Gately and Patsy Hutch in Dublin. Uh, Patsy Hutch living in his home in the north inner city, James Mango Gately coming and going a bit more. And they became the absolute obsessive targets for 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 the, the Kinnahan cartel and, and the Thomas Bomber Kavanagh uh, wing of that operation. So they tried to narrow it, um, like these people always do, mm. that they would only speak to a certain number of people and only a certain number of people would know what was happening. And Douglas Glynn fell into that category of, of being one of the most trusted people. Some of the other people involved in in that time would have been people like Patter Keating, who's behind bars as well, um, for a murder plot. People like that that were really on the, the top middle management of the of the cartel. Um, Douglas Glynn obviously was is is this week 
pled guilty to weapons uh, or to ammunition charges and drugs charges, but he's already serving a six and a half year sentence for his role in the plot to kill. Which he pleaded guilty to, and, and, and that's probably why to. he got a six and a half year sentence. Now, at the time of this in 2017, in the April 2017, Glynn was controlling the weapons. He was looking after the supply of these encrypted phones. Um, and he was like the logistics man. He yeah. was basically making sure and everybody got paid through him. Yeah. Um, so he was like the essentially the, the working director general of the Kinahan cartel at the time. Now, he comes to court this week and uh, as we say, he's pleaded guilty on these other charges. But it's during this um, case that we hear that there was this significant crack in the yeah. encrypted phone technology. Yeah. Now, they're BlackBerry phones. They're a different phone to the one that Imre Arrakis had and was caught with. Again, as part of this plot to kill Gately, he was arrested. He was followed from the airport out to Stephen Fowler's house where he stayed the night. And the following morning, the cops burst in and they arrested him. A very uh, clever and eagle-eyed detective managed to pick up an encrypted mobile phone that he'd been furnished with and photographed before it disappeared the messages that were left there. The court heard they were... Uh, linked to phones used by a guy called Bon, another guy called Knife. Knife was suspected of being Sean McGovern and Bon Daniel Kinahan. They were giving, sending photographs actually of Mago Gately on the phone and also giving instructions as to what to do. Yeah. Um, and Imre Arrakis was back and forth to them about how he saw it go off. He hoped to get close enough to Gately, he said, to just kill him with one bullet. Yeah. And that, of course, was his M.O., yeah, because the, the Blackberries, of course, can be wiped from, from if, even if Imre Rackus' phone was seized, the, the other person contacting him would have the ability to wipe that phone, to wipe all memory, to wipe all messages. So that's that's why it was, you know, a moment of luck or a moment of, of brilliance to, 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 to capture them there because that could, be, that could be eliminated. And what the court was told during Imre Rackus' case was that phone was wiped. Yeah. Okay, remotely. And presumably by the ultimate owner or controller of it, who we are presuming or we, we understand to be Daniel Kinahan or Sean McGovern in Dubai at this point. So these, this phone that has obviously uh, been used as by by uh, by Glynn, yeah, um, and the, the the information that has been garnered off that we don't know exactly what it is. It's a little bit titillating what has been said in court, and yet, as you say, worrying for the top command. Is this a separate hack into these phones? Are they a separate type of mobile? Um, since 2020, law enforcement has had success with these encrypted phones, which, of course, had been used for nearly 10 years by criminals. Yeah, I mean, it's, it would be. Uh, and like it, it, they described in court some of the, what they say, the code terms used for 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 drugs, weapons, and for example. But however, they're not very uh, coded. So no. they're describing cannabis and they're saying a slate of pollen. I mean, pollen is a, a type of, of cannabis resin. Like yeah. A pollen hash, you know, would yeah. be well known. That's not very disguised. They're calling uh, guns tools, which is kind of a normal Absolutely. nickname. Absolutely, that's so, used throughout. Um, yeah, the, and they're using, they're calling uh, ammunition seeds. So these really aren't very coded, if you know what I mean. Now, they're nicknames. Now, we don't know who's talking to who on the phones, no. or is this is this the brothers Anthony Glynn and his brother um Douglas speaking to one another. Well, they are. I mean, they obviously are speaking to each other and speaking to clients or or whoever. But we don't know if there's somebody directing them again, um, mm -hmm. and if they're interacting with him. That's not clear. Obviously, he pled guilty. Yeah. So you hear less evidence. It's not. It's not essential that they hear. They build a case and show where it comes from. 
due to the guilty plea. So, but it just shows you that you know, in using a slate of pollen to refer to cannabis, I mean, that is not the peop- the the sign of somebody who is worried about their encrypted phone being being viewed. But you see, the point was back in 2017. If you think about it, those encrypted phones. They didn't have any worries about them. Sure, they were no. talking like normal. I mean, yeah. that in a way, those encrypted phones when they came in, I suppose, you know, whenever they started to emerge around 2012, 2013, 2014, it seems, they were sold as bulletproof communication devices. Yeah. And that's what they genuinely believed yeah. they were. And you can see that in the in this evidence. Like the, the calling guns tools is barely code at yeah. all. You no, know? It's, it's not because they, they believe at this point that there's no way anybody's ever going to hack into these systems. And actually at this point, I think law enforcement also believe that they're not going to be able to hack into these systems either. But what happened then, of course, was the Dutch and the French got together um, and they obviously used technology experts, whether they were from within the police or outside them, I don't know. But they got their hands on a lot of these encrypted phones. There were some servers found. In 2020, EncroChat happened and that was the hacking of the EncroChat network, which we've seen was used by criminals both in the UK, very close to home here in Northern Ireland. Of course, the Irish Gardaí didn't uh, act upon the information and the intelligence they got. But over a period of about four to six months, the Dutch police monitored in live time, in real time, all the communications going through these hundreds of EncroChat phones. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know now, and we're not going to probably get this wrong and humiliate myself, but I mean, they basically uh, did a clone of of the whole system, I think, didn't they? So they, they, I don't know, they had mean, a copy of it, I think. Yeah, no, I so, wouldn't have a clue. Like, okay, I mean, well, I hope you, I didn't get that wrong. But well, so, you know, you've, you've humiliated me more than you had yourself <laughs> because here's well, me telling you I know a bit about all this. But well, I think that's I don't what know they, how they did it. Yeah. I just know they did it. So they have that on a on a kind of a permanent basis. They have that record, so they could see the things happening in live lifetime. I mean, in England, I think we said it recently. There was, I think, it's something like seventy something people in Liverpool alone done mm. for drugs offences due to that EncroChat uh, hack. So, but obviously, at the same time, yeah, you're still seeing cases come up where EncroChat phones are mentioned. Now, there's some challenges to it when it's just the information from the EncroChat phones that are used in the cases against individuals. But in a lot of cases. They had established where warehousing were, where guns were being stored. And when the police moved all together um, on the EncroChat information, they got, you know, they seized, they got people with their hands on drugs, their hands on guns. They, you know, they were able to untangle plots to kill, um, you know, what happened, what came fairly swiftly after that, was the Sky ECC hack. And a lot of those phones, those Sky ECC phones were being used in Belgium. They were being used in the Netherlands in particular. And again, there was the, uh, this was, this communication system was watched for a period of time before they moved on it. Um, that resulted in a kind of a, a, a window into the underworld and how much cocaine, I think in particular, was coming in through Antwerp and Rotterdam. Quite scary. Yeah. And obviously Europol's comments then really about an avalanche of cocaine that was still coming yeah. and still about to hit us. The Americans who do everything, um, you know, better than all of us, set up their own network and sold it into yeah, criminality, have, right? Yeah, so they from, didn't bother hacking. Yeah. They just actually went out and sold yeah, their had own sales units. Set up and, and yeah. actually go out and contact criminals and say, uh, I've got and they they sold good. them and they they got a lot of information. They had a huge 
huge uh, bust as well. And then more recently, of course, in in Germany, our own George the Penguin Mitchell's associates have been um, a phone, an encrypted phone network being used by them or being run by them uh, has been busted and hacked into as well. So, you know, Hindsight is a great thing. You talk about that they weren't using code. They didn't think they had to. They were no, sure this was no. going to go on forever. These I think it was phones particularly that gave them the the um the security was the idea that they could wipe the phone. So if they hear Douglas Glynn, for example, is arrested, his bosses instantly just wipe the phone. Now, if 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 even if the police get a normal iPhone or whatever, it can take months to to go if they don't get given the number by the, the I suspect. Have to say, I'd like mine wiped if anything. <laughs> would you not? Well I probably would, but yeah. uh yeah. No, but it, it takes them months even just to break into a phone if, yeah. if they're not given the, the, the logon details. It's not it's not a simple operation. No, so no, they no. always believe that Douglas phone gets his phone seized during a raid. We have months to, to wipe this, so that the risk really seemed quite low. Yeah. Um, but that that look that hasn't proven to be correct. And look, they're still out there with the new technology, the newer you know phone networks that we don't know about as of yet. There's still criminals being set, sold these bulletproof communication networks, believing that they'll never be hacked, they'll never be you know um, listened to at all. But I think. Probably if I was working in the criminal underworld, I'd be becoming that sort of 1990s paranoid about my phone again, yeah, I yeah. have to say. You it's know. great, the, the, the information about the, uh, the, the mafia boss um, arrested in Italy, the old school mafia bosses who only wrote things on pieces of paper. Yeah. That's it. Just yeah. that was it. So it may have to go back there to something like that. But the problem, I think, for people like Daniel Kinnahan and, and various others at that level is that they got used to being able to operate outside of their jurisdiction to mm. control their criminal activities from Dubai, basically. And that has to be done by electronic communication one way or another. Um, it's very, it's it's impossible to do it otherwise, uh, except through electronic means. So it's going to be complicated. Um, I suppose one of the interesting questions, as you see, Douglas Glynn now put out of commission, is what is left of the Kinnan organisation mm. in Ireland at this stage? I mean, I think there's no doubt they're still involved in importing drugs into the country, but do they have that network here still? Well, if you look at what if you look at what happened in the more recent past, certainly there have been busts and they have been linked um, officially by the Gardaí to be kind of part of the Kinahan network. But a lot of them have been foreign cells sent in, maybe even from England. Um, and obviously there was a factory set up um, where there was an attempt to kind of process the drugs here. Uh, but really, they are goosed here in Ireland and I think they've practically given up on it. Um, my information is that the Kinahan organisation are concentrated on Spain. Yeah. Um, that they are still operating somewhat in, in in Dubai. They've obviously been depleted there as well given the sanctions and um, a lot of the, um, you know, their partners are, are gone back facing justice in their own countries. But Spain is a key focus of theirs and that is between... The you know it makes me laugh when people talk about you just legalize cannabis and the problem solved. But actually, 
they're moving in on the legalized, the, the, the coming legalized cannabis industry. They're buying up fincas, which are the Spanish farms around Catalonia. They're looking at the, the loosening of the laws against cannabis. And in Spain, you seem to be able to be part of a club and grow your own gear yeah. or whatever. So, you know, they're looking at that. So, you know, nobody needs to be under any illusion that if we do legalize or decriminalize these products, they guys who've been who've been involved in the sale of them for yeah. 20, 30, 40 years now aren't going to walk away and, and let legitimate businessmen take it over. They'll be there too. No, I mean, they have to yeah, they have money that they have to they know make use to, of they know as well. They have to make use of it. It yeah. can't be sitting in, in bank accounts waiting mm. to be seized. But it is... It is um, but that's not really all as no. well. I mean, when you think about Spain, Johnny Morrissey being lifted there as their main money laundering man, like Spain was remained so significant even after they moved out to Dubai. And they moved out to Dubai initially, we believed, because they'd fallen out with the Hutch organization. It had nothing to do with it, of course, whatsoever. There was a, you know, there was a wider probe into money laundering um, down around the, the Costa del Sol. There was a certain European movement, I think, to bring the forces of law together to target these organizations that were based in Spain and really they just cleaned up and moved on out. Yeah. But they'd left behind their network of money laundering. Um, and some middle managers that, uh, that remained. Some of them may now be in Dubai, but they did have a... a, a oh, there's a, a good few there still, yeah, 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 in Spain. I mean, they had a real stronghold in Spain. I mean, when I was down there around 2012, 13, 14, um, you know, while obviously I didn't have the paperwork to prove it, I was told by very reliable sources that they were involved in in restaurants, in nightclubs. I mean, you, your eyes would water if you knew the kind of things that I was told they owned. Yeah, stuff and, that and we they were all know. The dominant force in the drugs trade at that point in in the Costa del Sol. In like in, in, in Puerto Benus in yeah, particular, yeah, they were. Yeah. Um, you know that seemed to have been their strongholds where, yeah. where they were based, and they had certainly taken over. And I mean, for the first time, it was like a kind of a, a football team. The Irish were really strong yeah. uh, down around the Costa. But then you see things change down there so quick as well. And there was, people say that a lot of the Eastern Europeans kind of came in. They were hungrier, more violent as well. They probably had yet to become billionaires. Yeah. And to do that, they really needed to muscle in and they were a bit frightened of them. But anyway, they... Um, you know, this stuff is still all emerging, yeah. isn't it? The yeah. Kinahans. You know, every time you but it is you, you go you to answer see, a question about them, you realise that there's still lots more to. But discover. you do see, I think, with people like Douglas Glynn, like, like they aren't maybe done and dusted in Ireland fully or whatever. But the idea that they can, because remember, like the Kinahan, even the top of the Carnahan cartel, yeah. were they they wanted control of everything that went on in Ireland. Yeah. just a decade ago. I mean, they really did. I mean, they were involved in minor disputes and all of that is... Ireland was theirs. Yeah. You know, and And I mean, I do think that's something that law enforcement, the legal system here, um, and probably the media, have to be proud of. Like, I mean, they they have been, as as an organisation, as a force, there's others there obviously have come up and there's plenty more work to do. But the Kinahan 
organization as such, that power has been taken off it. Yeah, it was from, dismantled gradually. Yeah. And it looked at some point like, a, you know, we probably thought, or I thought, anyway, <laughs> they're never going to be able to yeah. do this. But it has been dismantled. And people like Douglas Glynn, who are essential, I think he was even described as an essential cog by the judge. People like that were the people that, that greased the wheel of that business. And uh, they're not they're not everywhere to be found in the drugs world, people that can be trusted and are competent. And you put a few of them away and it really has been a, a blow to that kind of control. In his defence, Anne-Marie Lawler, the senior counsel for Glynn, whose client pleaded guilty, right, said that um, he was basically not the beneficial owner of any of the items found in this lockup where the, the, the drugs and the ammunition and stuff was, that he was basically the warehouse manager. And she said he was the father of three children who were suffering without the presence of, of him in the family home and that he was just simply a cog in the operation. He received instructions, she said, from others and acted on them. And that was accepted, actually, by the, the detective sergeant um, who, who was giving evidence Um he said that, uh, Miss Lawler said that her client had been involved in a sports club and had engaged in a drug treatment programme prior to his incarceration. Now, Douglas Glynn is well in his late 40s, am I right? I don't, I'm not sure. Well, his brother's 51, yeah. so I think he is in his late 40s. Um, so clearly, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to have a, sent, a reduced sentence. Yeah. He's trying to put something before the courts that will go in his favour. And... Um, the, the involvement in a sports club where I immediately bristle at that because <laughs> uh, we all know exactly the involvement of the Kinnahan's organisations in sport mm. and how... They tried to use these things. Across the board, they tried to use them, use sport to gain a respectability within the community, uh, used it to try and legitimise funds. But very much, I suppose, I see sport as a place where kids are taken in off the streets and it, it's always, you know... If you keep the kids in sport, yeah. you'll keep them on the straight yeah. and narrow. Or certainly, it no, you help. don't want that line blurred where you don't. You, where you know, sport and criminality of a, a, a meeting place. You know, definitely mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. However, look, he's he'll serve his time. He played guilty, and uh, we'll see. We'll see what else uh, with that phone. That'll come up again. Wait till you see now. That'll yes. pop up in a court in 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 the Netherlands or somewhere. You need to keep an eye on all these cases because all this sort of the information about these hacks of these encrypted phones is coming out slowly. There's not one no. kind of report on it at all. It's it's all coming out little bit by bit by bit in evidence in in court cases across the world. Yeah, but so and also in Ireland with the ultimate aim. Yeah, and that's you know, of, of bringing the very top level of the cartel to justice. And that that still is the aim. Yeah. So, well, look, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, Leave us a review or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. 
Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.